0: Just a heads up before we begin this episode, the Baron of Botox deals with difficult topics, including depression and suicide. It is not recommended for young audiences. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for information on resources for anyone who is suffering from depression or suicidal thoughts. Let's begin the show. Dr. Brandt spent his final days in Miami. Though he typically split his time between the Sunshine State and New York, Miami was where he felt more at ease with his surroundings. He loved to take long walks with his dogs, even on the hottest days, dressed in lightweight fabrics and a white sun hat. At the dermatology meeting in San Francisco, he had gone through the motions and fulfilled his obligations. But without the expectations of an adoring audience, he withdrew into himself. He continued his daily yoga sessions with his instructor, Carl, but for the first time in 10 years, he let himself linger in Shavasana. Shavasana is the last part of the practice, a meditative moment during which the body and mind are finally still. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox, Episode 9, Kinsugi.
1: get goosebumps because he just wasn't himself at all. He just was very distant. And so I knew something was wrong. I mean, I knew he was in a bad way, but I didn't know how bad it was, of course, until after.
0: Dr. Jeremy Green joined Dr. Brandt Dermatology Associates in 2011 after graduating from Princeton, where he played sprint football, and then the University of Miami, from which he graduated with both a medical degree and honors. Dr. Green was raised with a reverence for the local skin pioneer. His mom was even a Dr. B patient.
1: He was like the big show in town. So everybody, I grew up in Miami, everybody knew about Dr. Brandt. He had this kind of aura about him of, I don't even know how to describe it, like cutting edge, chic, fancy, whatever you want to say. And so to be able to potentially join his practice was a massive honor. It was pretty cool.
0: Though he was 30 years younger than his boss, Dr. Green says Dr. Brandt always treated him as a peer.
1: It gave me all sorts of credibility I didn't deserve because we'd walk around, you know, meetings with him and everywhere and the CEOs of companies and all these big people, all the top dermatologists and people in aesthetics were kind of coming up to meet him and talk to him, pay their respects, chat. And so he would introduce me to everyone as his partner from, you know, pretty much day one, which was pretty amazing. Um, And just speaks to how humble he was. There was no paternal relationship it was more like friends you know he treated us as equals which again speaks to this guy who was this giant in our field that you could be a new kid on the block and as long as you cared worked hard tried he he treated you like an equal which to me is really sort of not around uh the rest of our field so coming to work was hilarious i mean he we would always tease each other and and joke around and um patients would say you're so lucky to be with Dr. Brand how how do you get this job and he'd say oh Dr. Green used to babysit me when I was a little boy that's how I knew him you know that was his sense of humor he'd walk through the halls and he'd be like Dr. Green I'm thinking of doing Botox today but I'm nervous Like, I don't want to change the way I look but I think I want to try it yeah so he'd laugh or he'd walk through the halls and be like I look so butch today and he'd kind of frown a little bit so our interplay was very joking very fun you know borderline inappropriate I don't know how it would have gone over in this era of a lot more political correctness. You know, fast forward a decade. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't even know if this is appropriate to say, but he would always joke about, you know, how macho he was and how kind of not macho I was, So, which was funny. I mean, I have pictures of me kind of fake kissing him under a mistletoe. You know, we would always just joke around like that.
0: Dr. Green sent me the pictures which were taken around Christmas in 2014. In them, Dr. Brandt is wearing a gray button-down shirt under a black vest with leather-looking pants and high tops. He has a sparkly white Santa hat on his head. Dr. Green, who is a couple inches shorter than his five-foot-nine boss, is sporting a white lab coat over a plaid shirt and gray jeans with a tiny top hat headband and a large sack of presents slung over one shoulder. They are standing in a treatment room under some shoddily drawn mistletoe with their arms around each other, their lips puckered as if to kiss. In the next picture, Dr. Brandt is doubled over with laughter. He also sent me two other pictures, both taken at the American Academy of Dermatology convention in March 2015. In the first, Dr. Green and his fellow associate Jolie Kaufman flank a distracted-looking Dr. Brandt. They're all wearing royal blue lanyards around their necks and standing in front of a giant welcome sign featuring two hands cradling a globe. Dr. Green and Dr. Kaufman are wearing sunglasses and smiling, but Dr. Brandt, who is dressed conservatively in a white button-down and a gray jacket, is squinting into the sun. His mouth is pressed into a small, closed-lipped smile. His under-eye area appears darkened, almost bruised. In the final shot, Dr. Brandt is shown seated next to Dr. Green in a restaurant booth with a clean plate in front of him. Again, he seems taken aback by the presence of the camera. He's wearing a white button-down under a black blazer and clutching reading glasses in one hand and his iPhone in the other. The screen, which is illuminated, lends an eerie uplight to his face. I emailed Dr. Green that the two sets of images seem to have wildly different energies. He wrote back, didn't notice until you mentioned it. Striking difference three months apart.
1: He was in Miami the week before he passed, you know, and he just wasn't himself. Like, I talked about him doing a meeting with me and Jolie and uh, us working on a project together that normally he'd be so locked in and intellectually curious and talking about things. and He would just kind of, you know, gaze at me and I just knew it wasn't him and the thing that, like, I still get goosebumps saying is, like, right before he passed, they were like, "Dr. Brandt needs to see you. Uh, needs you to see a patient. He's, he's really worried about what happened with this laser." And so I went in, and the patient was perfectly fine. It was not like a normal skin reaction after this laser that, that Dr. Brandt did perfectly. But he just—I don't know if he just didn't have confidence in himself, or he was second-guessing himself. And I literally walked out and had my heart dropped because I said, "What's wrong?" Because he was like this. Like the commander, I mean, he was the, the source of confidence for us all. He, Any difficult situation, he would work through, and he would give us confidence. So the fact that he lost it in himself, even though everything was perfect, was it was really disconcerting and disarming for me.
0: But even though Dr. Brandt's confidence had waned, his caring nature persevered.
1: Just a few weeks before he died, I got food poisoning. I was so sick, and we tried <laughs> to never miss clinic, and I was literally on the floor of my bathroom, you know, in tears. And uh, in between bouts of vomiting, I, I looked at my cell phone and I had like two missed calls, you know, Fred Brandt text, Jeremy, don't worry, we'll, we'll take care of your patients, just take care of yourself, we're here for you. So imagine what kind of human in the depths of his depression cares that much about other people that he would do something like that. And so that's kind of kind of how I remember him.
0: Mm-hmm. You okay?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm kind of sensitive.
0: When Dr. Brandt hung himself the morning of April 5th, 2015, the entire Miami office, the doctors and the patients, reeled with grief.
1: After he passed away, it was like a wake or a shiva for like months straight because people just come in here and cry. You know, they just mourned. And I think it's hard for maybe people not in our field or not you know, maybe people listening to your podcast that think where they think this is such like a superficial, vapid thing, aesthetics. And it's like, but he was such like a partner in life to these people. And they exposed all their vulnerabilities to him. And he made them feel better about themselves and made them confident and feel like they could get through whatever they were dealing with.
0: Dr. Roy Geronimus, the founder of the Laser and Skin Surgery Center of New York, where Fred's practice took up half a floor only realized the depths of his colleague's demons after his death.
2: You know, he'd like to be a great doctor. He also, he liked to be loved. I recall uh, when he passed away, you know, he had a few complications, which I inherited and had to manage, you know, after his death. One of the patients told me that she bought him a $15,000 diamond bracelet because he felt so bad about the complications that she had based on the procedure she had with him.
0: He bought it for her. or She bought it for him.
2: He bought it for her, and and now Fred did have a you know a technique which has somewhat fallen out of savor in, in the four years since his death. Uh, that of the, the big hyper volumed cheeks, you know, the big apple cheeks, which you know were very popular for a while, which you know he helped uh, bring into play, uh, and I I believe that uh, the injection of large volumes of these filler materials uh, did put the patients at higher risk for complications. And that, that, that's based upon the patients of his that I saw post-death. But, you know, we didn't know that at the time. There was just no way to know. But I, I think that the problems have pretty much been minimized uh, with the use of a smaller amount of volume you know, with each particular patient. He just loved to be busy. Loved to be doing what he was doing. Uh, You know, when when his schedule was slower one day versus another, he would get cranky because he just loved to, to be doing what he did best, and that's taking care of patients and interacting with them. It was more to him than just being a doctor. This was his life. He didn't, you know, have a committed relationship, and I think the patients filled the void where You know, he would complain to me periodically that, you know, you guys go home to your family and, you know, I'm going home to do yoga. And I think there was a sense of loneliness with that or disappointment with that part of his life.
0: In the first episode of The Baron of Botox, I talked about the banalities of suicide, how in real life it lacks the romance often depicted in film and in television. I listed a variety of things Dr. Brandt knew before he took his own life. And throughout the course of this series, I have tried to illuminate stressors and variables that may have led to his untimely end. Some listeners did not like this approach. Something I've taken to heart. I'm Kelly McBride. I am the chair of the Craig Newmark Center for Ethics and Leadership at the Pointer Institute, which means I am a media ethicist. The topic of suicide and how it gets reported in the news and in podcasts like this one, is so complicated that Kelly McBride has devoted much of her career to finding better ways to talk about it. A media ethicist, what does that mean exactly? It means
3: I help journalists mainly, but also other people who publish information figure out the ethics of how they do it so that they can maximize the good that
0: they're trying to accomplish and minimize the harm that they might cause. I called Kelly because I wanted to know how this story, one that I've always seen as a parable for so many universal struggles, could actually help people who are suffering. People who, like Dr. Brandt, feel like no matter what they do, no matter how much they achieve, there just isn't a place for them in the world. She says the biggest thing researchers and experts in the field want to avoid is a copycat phenomenon called the contagion effect, a term you may recall from after fashion designer Kate Spade took her own life in 2018. Some media outlets were criticized for turning the tragedy into a spectacle. And Lord, if podcasts don't like to turn tragedies into spectacles.
3: The researchers around contagion will tell you that um, attributing a suicide to a single event like a failed test or of, um, end of a relationship or not getting into a college or getting fired from your job or anything like that, but that actually does exacerbate contagion and it's inaccurate because
0: it is fairly complicated. How do you sort of categorize which facts of this kind of, um, incident just really are gratuitous and not helpful?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I recognize this tension. I was a reporter for 15 years before I came to the Pointer Institute and started to specialize in media ethics. And so as a reporter and a writer, you are trained to include as much detail as you can to make something real and concrete and visual and understandable what I learned after coming to Pointer and looking at some of the ethical issues around coverage of suicide in the media is that there is a scientifically proven effect called the contagion effect. The contagion effect, while it is well known, I don't think for a long time was well understood. And it's why there are a lot of rules in journalism handbooks that say don't cover suicide. And the problem with that is is suicide is a massive phenomenon that deserves coverage because the public needs to be educated about it. So when journalists cover suicide and they include a lot of details about the means of death, that is one of the triggers for contagion. And researchers have identified this.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. If you go back and listen to episode one of this podcast, Easter Sunday, you'll see that we have removed some potentially triggering details. But best practices aside, Kelly says there is no sense in shying away from the ugliness of suicide. From the stories we tell about the people who die this way, from the collateral damage it causes, or from the role we all play in trying to keep it from knocking on our own doors.
3: So when journalists cover suicide, and they include a lot of details about the means of death, that is one of the triggers for contagion. And researchers have identified this. There are a couple of others, including um, glorifying the individual, sort of vaulting him to sainthood, which we sometimes do, particularly with either celebrity suicides or teen suicides. Another thing that we do is we tend to run photos that have that impact too, right? To create this like saintly effect on the person. And we tend to almost wallow in the sorrow and grief of people who are left behind not to say that's not true like all of those things are facts that are knowable and reportable and would actually make a story very compelling for readers or viewers but they are also the exact details that would make someone who is suffering from depression consider suicide a reasonable alternative sometimes in a fog of depression people feel invisible and unappreciated and sometimes even angry at how insignificant they feel. And so the idea of demonstrating to people how wrong they are is attractive sometimes. We have refused to talk about suicide in a healthy way, meaning to acknowledge that it happens quite frequently, and that that it, it happens across all socioeconomic and racial and ethnic religious dimensions, because we have we've shoved it off into a corner and refused to talk about it, we have ignored some of these more glaring realities. That if we talked about, may actually discourage somebody from carrying out a plan to commit suicide. And then also we've failed to educate people, right? We've failed to let people know how common it is and what to look for and and what might successfully prevent a suicide. You're looking for language and other indicators that they don't find themselves to be very worthy. You are looking for mood changes, withdrawn, you know, and, and especially abrupt things on the um, National Suicide Hotline. There's a whole list of indicators of things that you should look for.
0: We'll also include them at the end of this episode. But what the experts will tell you is that
3: the most helpful thing that you can do is to say, are you considering taking your life? And if they say yes, to keep talking about that, to ask the other two questions, um, and to, to have an action plan where you can say, you know, can we talk about getting you some help? Then the last thing that people who are trained in this do is come up with a, like a promise that you will call me if you get to the point where you feel like this is your only alternative.
0: I ask something that I've struggled with since I began looking into the story. Can the act of suicide ever be ethical? What about that gray area of people who might posit that each of us is entitled to choose the way our story ends when and how we die yeah that is that is a it
3: is a eternally fascinating question as an ethicist um because First of all, you have to get to the factors that might be causing someone to suffer, right? Like, like there's this presumption that as human beings we want to live and that people who don't want to live are suffering. And I think for the most part that's accurate. And so then you look at what is the cause of that individual's suffering and has, have we as a society done enough to alleviate that?
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Check. surmised that he had perhaps found some facsimile of peace in the decision. He told me, the option of continuing on for another year of whatever he thought his life had become was off the table. So he didn't have to dwell on that. The first time we met, this same friend told me that Dr. Brandt always reminded him of a kintsugi vase. Kintsugi is the ancient Japanese art form of mending shattered ceramics with liquid gold silver or platinum. The resulting pieces are beautiful. They don't hide their imperfections. A Kintsugi vase can still hold water or fruit and glints in the sunlight. A Kintsugi vase doesn't know it's damaged. The medical examiner report and autopsy for Dr. Brandt was conducted on April sixth, two 2015 at 8.15 a.m. It's a four-page report that scans his body from head to toe. It reads, The body is that of a well-developed, well-nourished, 5'9", 166-pound adult white male who appears younger than the reported age of 65 years. Call me macabre, but I can't help but think Dr. B would get a kick out of that. Most everything about Dr. Brandt's anatomy is unremarkable or to be expected. The teeth are natural and in good condition. The scalp is covered by 13 centimeter straight, blonde and gray hair in normal distribution. The prostate gland is absent. Then, toward the end of the report, is something that catches my eye. The left anterior descending coronary artery was 99% blocked. Among medical professionals, a blockage of this magnitude has a nickname, the Widowmaker. In other words, Dr. Brandt, who spent his whole life running from his own genetics, was on the brink of one of the most lethal forms of cardiac arrest. The kind of cardiac arrest that's so severe that less than 6% of victims survive outside of a hospital. Maybe he knew about the blockage. Maybe he didn't. After reviewing the report, his close friend texted me that Dr. Brandt never mentioned that, nor did he present with any symptoms. But that could explain his extreme tiredness in the last month. In addition to classifying the death as a hanging, the autopsy makes one thing abundantly clear. Dr. Brandt's body was practically perfect, but his heart, in every way imaginable, was broken beyond repair. Back in July, when I was in Miami to interview Stefan, and in the thick of my reporting, I went to visit. Dr. Brandt's house. Workers, On a kind of like sweltering evil. summer day, the kind where the sweat from your brow somehow migrates down your sternum and into your belly button, I walked around his neighborhood with a giant microphone in my hands. Oh, I think this is it. There's a whole crew of gardeners sitting outside of a house with shingled roof, archways. For some reason, it felt important to me to see where Dr. Brandt lived and where he took his own life. In front of his former home, which is in a gated community of 25 waterfront mansions and for which Dr. Brandt took out a $200,000 mortgage in 1997, is a small security booth. I entered without much of a game plan in mind and asked the attendant if I was in the right place. He said I was and even gave me the phone number for the person who lives there now. Not exactly Fort Knox, I guess. I reached out to the new tenant and she responded but declined to comment. Honestly, I'm not even sure what I hoped to hear from her. That she discovered a journal stashed under the floorboards? That she unearthed some newfound evidence to prove that Dr. Brant was actually murdered? I'm pretty sure things like that only happen in the movies. I think, like Dr. Green, I just wanted to rewrite the way his story ended.
1: We all kind of wanted to help him ride off into the sunset, you know? He worked like 9.30 to seven thirty or eight PM and just with high profile, high demanding, great, awesome people mostly, but exhausting work, five days a week, we would travel on the weekends for meetings. I mean he took no breaks on his vacation, he would come into the office and be reading journals and we're like, Dr. P, you need to go. Like go somewhere, get out of town, you know. I I think we would have made him take vacation, make him take time for himself. Like he had the means to do anything he wanted and he never, ever, ever took a break. His mind was always working in a mile a minute, so I, I guess try to force him to, to to be good to himself in that way, like emotionally. I mean, he did yoga. He was, you know, he would always punch his stomach and show me that he had rock-hard abs. He had better abs than I ever hoped to have, you know, which was kind of embarrassing, but he would, uh, he worked so hard. He did yoga. He was so regimented and disciplined, wouldn't touch a drop of alcohol, ate like a rabbit, you know, And, uh, uh, and so for me, it's like, enjoy your life. Like for what, you know, let us, I wanted to be like, let us take these blows. Let us deal with any negativity you're dealing with. Like, we'll stand up for you. Like you've always protected us and and done for us. Like let us do for you. Like you write the end of your career, the way you want, like see practice two days a week. See only the nice people, see only the people you love, you know, that love you and just make life easy and enjoy Like you've worked so hard. You've built an empire. (laughs) just enjoy it. Like, you you know, he never let himself enjoy it.
0: For better or worse, the Dr. Brandt story continues without him. The methods he pioneered, like Y-lifts or neck rejuvenations, are still taught and utilized all over the world. And the look for which he was once ridiculed on a hit TV show is now accessible, acceptable, and popular. And we all know someone who treats their face, or their body, like a problem to be solved. Throughout the course of putting out this podcast, people who love Dr. Brandt have reached out via social media and email to tell me about the person they knew. Dr. Green, with whom I first connected over Twitter, says he hopes everyone can see a little of themselves in Dr. Brandt.
1: I guess that's what I wanted to talk to you about is I was like, why? Is it for your ego? Do you want attention? Like why? And I just said, no, I just want to really share the story that, uh, that he was so amazing as a human. I don't know how his story would have ended and it may have been hard for him to get old. And honestly, he hadn't gotten old. Like the guy was in incredible shape. (laughs) He was uh, so healthy, so strong, but maybe staring down the barrel of of getting old, I'm sure it was very difficult for him because he spent his whole life emphasizing youth and how to restore youth and kind of like deifying youth. So how do you reconcile that with not being young? You know, that must have been very hard. And I think it'll be hard for all of us, but especially him because he built Dr. Brandt, the brand on youth. It sounds like the song Only the Good Die Young or... The fact that we have these icons that all died young, you know, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, all these people, it's almost like they weren't meant to ride off into their 90s into a wheelchair. These icons were sort of meant to be always preserved in their their state. I think just listening, it just kind of reinforces the notion that people from the outside can look at someone and think that they have it all. They have money, they have fame, they have everything. And you could say, how could that person be sad? Or how could they have anything wrong? Like they have no worries in life but we all have our own struggles, and he had deep struggles. We all do.
0: The Baron of Botox is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Justine Harmon. Executive producer is Jason Hope. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman with additional editing from Jasmine Cross and Jason Hope. Original music by Brandon Bush. Barbara Keen is our researcher and fact checker. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The Baron of Botox is a 10-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you or someone you know is struggling from depression, find local support and more resources by visiting NAMI, N-A-M-I dot org. If you are having suicidal thoughts, you can reach a trained crisis counselor by calling the toll-free National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK or texting NAMI, N-A-M-I, to seven four one seven four one. You are not alone. Thank you for listening. If someone you know is exhibiting any of the following behaviors, especially if the behavior is new, has increased, or seems related to a painful event, loss, or change, please seek help by calling the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Talking about wanting to die or to kill themselves. Looking for a way to kill themselves, like searching online or buying a gun. Talking about feeling hopeless or having no reason to live. Talking about feeling trapped or in unbearable pain talking about being a burden to others. Increasing the use of alcohol or drugs. Acting anxious or agitated, behaving recklessly. Sleeping too little or too much. Withdrawing or isolating themselves. Showing rage or talking about seeking revenge. Extreme mood swings